comedy junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 285 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Rules of Acquisition episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that in the world of Star Trek, the rules of acquisition used by the Ferengi species, particularly in uh, Deep Space Nine, they happen to have a total number in the rules of acquisition, the total number of rules... 285. And with that wonderful little bit of Star Trek Ferengi knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! How are you doing, Matthew? Hola, Tim. Hola. I'm all right. How's life treating you, sir? Life, you know, life is doing better today. Uh, this past week, I got stuck with a summertime cold. Well, I guess it was more of a summertime allergy attack than a summertime sure. cold or whatever. But I, I don't like well, it. Well, it's kind of interesting. Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I apologize. Didn't mean to cut you off there. No, I, it's, I was just going to say that it, it's weird. I've never experienced this at all, like back in Texas. But since living here the past couple years, I've just been attacked by the allergies of California. Well, it's because California is trying to trying to get the Texas out of you. You see, you're, it's it's trying to make sure that you truly become... A Californian. And so it's attacking your immune system until you finally become immune, and then you will not want to come back to Texas. <laughs> Is what that that's happen? like the that's like the last thing for California to check off in the uh, assimilation process. First it's yes. we're not gonna supply anybody with decent barbecue out here. No no decent <laughs> Mexican food, no classic Tex Mex out here, no, none of that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just now it's the immunity to all things allergic out here, and I'm pure Californian. Sure. See, and that's where they're going. But, no, I was noticing that you did sound – I mean, you had briefly mentioned it last week, but you were sounding a little stuffed up. So it's nice to hear that you're no longer sounding so stuffed up. You do you do sound like you're coming off it, though. I can I can hear that little bit of rawness in the back of your throat, so – no, it's it's not sore though. I mean, it's not. You're, uh, hopefully, you're not having a sore throat problem still, are you? No, 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 no. I never really had that sore throat problem. Just where it feels like you're. What are those things in the back of your throat? Tonsils. Yeah, whenever so those tonsils things. Back there? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Whenever those things just like enlarge and it feels like you're suffocating because you can't really swallow anything. You try to take a horse pill and. It gets like stuck between those two swollen pouches of tonsil. Yes, when your tonsils swell to the point that it's blocking your uvula. Yes, I know. That sucks most of all. But no, you don't experience that in Texas. For the for the record, the uvula, your uvula is that little skin thingy that hangs down at the back of your throat. Man. It's called a uvula. There's your useless knowledge for the day. Or week. Depending on... It's a year for me. (laughs) Yes. But it is indeed summertime. Uh, Since we last recorded, it recorded... It's officially summertime. Uh, I think, what, like last Friday or last Thursday, it was summer? Truly is. Now, does it feel like summer there in Texas? When you just walk outside and you immediately start sweating? Yes. 
Yes, we entered that probably about a week and a half, two weeks ago, really. But it is truly, truly in check now. We are, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get into my car and I am actually got to the point now where I, I can actually keep my work car in the garage right now. And so even then, so it's not sitting in the sun, I get out, I go to work and I go to work in the evening and I'm still feeling like I'm peeling myself out of the seat as soon as I get to work. So it's terrible. I got the AC on full blast. I'm the only one in the car. So, I mean, it's all, all the vents are blowing air on me and even still, even still. Because it is officially summertime now, Matthew, I must ask you an age old question, hmm. which requires total, I need your total honesty. Okay. How many hot dogs have you eaten at once? And I know there are different sizes of hot dogs. Like, I don't know if there's actually a standard hot dog size in the books or anything. I mean, I are we talking like, are we talking like going to the store and buying a package of ballpark? Going to the store and buying a package of Oscar Mayer? Or are we talking like Nathan's famous, you know, hot dog contest hot dogs? Yeah, I'm talking about the Nathan Wieners. Yeah, the ones that they call them a foot like long, but really they're about pound hot dog. Yeah. eight inches or so. Okay, the most of those big, huge Nathan-sized hot dogs in the bun with the relish and the mustard on it, you know, and the onions, definitely two, possibly three. Maybe I think once I had three when I was, like, really, really hungry at a Sam's one day. But uh, two, two of those. So you're at a Sam's Club and you... Grabbed a packet of hot dogs and you found a place to no, cook them. No, no, no. They they do the same thing as Costco. You can get a you can get a Nathan's hot dog and a and a drink for a dollar fifty. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. I don't. I'm not like you. Well off people and shop at Costco. <laughs> we don't shop at Costco. We shop at the knockoff Costco, Sam's. <laughs> it's the Walmart of Costco's. So. <laughs> and, and ironically, Walmart owns Sam's Club. It, it is. That's why I felt comfortable saying it's the Walmart of Sam, of Costco. <laughs> and Costco was first, even though Co I don't think Costco went nationwide first, but Costco was first. Sam's, uh, Sam Walton, I, I read this in his autobiography many moons ago. You read the autobiography of the guy who opened up Sam's Club? Yes. Is that the only thing he ever did? Like, has he owned multiple stores of a different variety, or... Sam Walton, the guy who started Walmart, was the guy who started Sam's. That's why it's called Sam's. That's why it's called Walmart, because his name is Sam Walton. Oh, okay. Was, was Sam. I mean, he's dead. But Spoiler yeah, basically, alert. he, uh... <laughs> in all seriousness, so, he liked, he, he, he was visiting... Something, for some reason, he was doing something Walmart related in California. He saw a Costco, went inside and was like, holy crap, this is amazing. And then met with the owner, then owner of Costco and took him out to dinner and started grilling him. What the hell? How'd you get into this doing whatever, blah, 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 blah. And so the guy who's the owner of Costco is like, oh, yeah, that's what we did. And I mean, I mean, they weren't like exchanging trade secrets or anything, but basically he was just kind of like, well, this was my idea and this is kind of how it laid it out. And this is what we started doing. So Sam Walton did took that back to the Walmart headquarters, and then they opened up Sam's. And I want to say Sam's went nationwide first, but um, yeah. So Costco was first, but uh, 
Sam's is the Walmart of Costco's. Now, that is useless knowledge right there. That is, <laughs> And Sam's does the same thing as Costco. And Costco's been doing it for something like 30 years where you can go into a Costco and you can get a quarter pound Nathan's hot dog and a like a 20 ounce, you know, soda. You know, not not the bottle, but like a, a cup, you know, like a 20 ounce cup of fountain drink. And it's $1.50. And they've always done that. Sam's does the same thing. It's a quarter pound Nathan's hot dog and... Uh, and the fountain drink for a dollar fifty. So, a, how long is the Sam Walmart book? How long is Sam Walmart's autobiography? And B, was Sam Walmart a big fan of Nathan's Footlong Hot Dogs? I don't know when it officially became Nathan's Hot Dogs from Sam. But I mean, I just happened to have been there doing some shopping last weekend and saw them there and got a hot dog and a drink for lunch. Uh, back last on, so that's how I know it's Nathan's. But I knew Costco was doing Nathan's from a long time ago. So no, the the book I want to say I don't know, maybe three hundred pages or something like that. I mean, it's not a it's not a super hard read. It's a fascinating read, especially if you're in, uh, if if you've ever worked retail, um, and if you ever want to see how Walmart became what it became. It, it's it's definitely a fascinating read. I will say that for sure. He's a, he was definitely an interesting guy. The life and times of Sam Walmart. I don't even remember what his last name is, really, but I'm going to say it's just Walmart. Sam Walton. Walton. You know, like the old, like the t- like the old TV show. From yeah, the I late think 70s Sam Walmart sounds great. Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, but um, <laughs> uh, I want to say that the book is called Made in America or something. Okay. Which is also so. the name of a Whoopi Goldberg and Ted Danson movie from exactly. the early 90s. Same Walton, same Walton, Sam Walton, Made in America, My Story. Interesting. That is the book. 379 pages. And three hot dogs. That's, that's the, that's the max <laughs> of those wieners you ate were three, three yes. of those dogs. Now. And why, why, so here we are, <laughs> 10 minutes later. Why did you want to know about so, how many hot dogs I've ever eaten? So two weekends ago, uh, I meant to bring this up last week or ask you about this last week, but. Two weekends ago, we went to a Dodger game, and I'm a diehard Houston Astros fan, and we went to go see the L.A. Dodgers play the San Francisco Giants, and the Giants are my significantly more S.O.'s baseball team. So we went we went to go see it, but like, I, I had really no stake in either team. I just wanted to go and actually enjoy the stadium and not being booed or hissed at by crazy Dodgers fans. But anyways, what they're they're known there for their uh, their hot dogs. You can go get a, a good hot dog, Dodger dogs there. You've been able to get a Dodger dog there since the I think the mid 60s, whenever the stadium first opened up, like 62 or 64. So it's a staple. And it's like a regular bun, but the wiener is long and it's not really big, but it's long. And it definitely tastes like a straight up wiener. And I don't know about you. You need Matt. to make that the show title, dude. I'm serious. What's that? It's not really big, but it's long. <laughs> Done. But so. <laughs> see, normally I like the uh. the not too big, but it's long wiener. I usually like it with chili and they have pretty good chili there. But the particular line that I was waiting in, I missed the first three and a half innings of the fucking game because these women were too long or were taking too much time. It was bad. And wow. 
I, I got up there and I freaked out and I asked for a Fanta, which I never get a Fanta. And then I got three fucking hot dogs. And I got those three hot dogs with the full intention of eating those three hot dogs. So I was hoping to get chili on them. They didn't have chili there. So I was forced to just use like the brown mustard and the relish, you know, but it had more of a spice to it. And so I ate all three of those hot dogs in maybe five minutes. I really didn't start regretting that situation until midway through that third hot dog. But as I was drinking that Fanta drink, because I ordered whatever the orange Fanta was, it turned out they put horchata in it instead. So I'm there eating three fucking huge ass hot dogs. And then I just cover that by drinking down horchata thinking it was like a refreshing Fanta drink and by that time the horchata was like hot as shit so I'm not proud of this story by any means but <laughs> okay, I think people were impressed with my handling of that situation because I did not puke at that moment Okay, now I noticed you just qualified that statement with at that moment. So does that mean you did eventually puke? Well, no, I puked that morning, but because there are things that are put on this world for a reason, and mixing horchata and huge-ass Dodger dogs was never conceived by any higher being. More than likely not. At least you didn't get horchata hot dogs, because... That's just, that makes me a little sick right now, thinking of that combination specifically. But maybe I would have at least got my Sprite or my Fanta. So I guess the question now becomes, do you wanna wanna Fanta? I guess, do you want to want to Fanta? No. <laughs> do you want to want a horchata hot dog? Do you want to want the horchata? Dodge your dog. But anyways, you know... Who might like hot dogs, but is not enjoying his summer? Man. Terry Gilliam. I'll tell you what, you you need to hop off that segue, because I don't think you could make it any better. No, my punny didn't help. My my, my punny didn't work. Oh, the, I thought you were going to say something. The pun, the pun of a segue, and then you made a segue. I thought you were going to say something funnier. Just talk about Terry Gilliam. Just do it. Go talk. <laughs> From IndieWire.com, Terry Gilliam hasn't lost the rights to The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, claims his producer. The series written by Michael Nordine, and again, via IndieWire.com. And it says this, The plot thickens again. After losing his trial in the Paris Court of Appeals last week, Terry Gilliam also appeared to have lost the rights to his long-in-the-making passion project, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Former producer Paulo Bronco claimed both victory and the rights to the film, which premiered at Cannes last month. But now Gilliam's producer, Mariella Buisvsky, is firing back, saying, quote, We have the rights of Don Quixote, and it will be released all over the world, end quote, she tells El Espanol in a new interview. Bronco, quote, had the option to buy, but never exercised that right of purchase, end quote. Bashevsky adds in her translated conversation, 
Bronco and Gilliam have been embroiled in a protected legal battle over, quote, Don Quixote, oh, that's just the name, not a quote, over Don Quixote, which Gilliam has been laboring to make in one form or another for 25 years. Johnny Depp was originally attached to Star, but the version that was finally completed stars Adam Driver and Jonathan Price. Boish Vazeski concedes that, quote, there will be damages and prejudices for having badly rescinded, end quote, after last week's ruling, but that doesn't mean Gilliam can't release the movie. As for why Bronco now claims to have the rights to Don Quixote, Bisvesky says that the producer, quote, makes a balloon of everything, end quote, and goes so far as to invoke slavery when describing working with him. Quote, the era of slavery is over, and if I do not want to work with you, you cannot force me. You can force me to pay for what you ask, but not for me to work for you, because that is slavery, and it is impossible to force Terry to make the film, even if it is still in force. And that is what we explain because the judge leaves open the subject of content. End quote. Bujlesvesky also claims that Bronco harbors a, quote, desire for revenge against something so irrational you cannot fight it. End quote. And apparently IndieWire did reach out to Gilliam for comment, his reps, and uh, they, as of right now, as of June 22nd, they have not heard back. Matthew, your thoughts? My thoughts, that's, I, I think that's a, it's kind of like, well, technically, technically, we didn't lose the rights, technically, uh, <laughs> it sounds like what is it, but in all, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't sound like Gilliam is anywhere near out of the woods yet, and it doesn't look like he or anyone remotely involved with this project outside of that shithead producer is going to be able to move forward with anything. So, uh, you know, good for them for, you know, technically, technically, but it doesn't really mean anything. And it's just one person saying something, and that hasn't been confirmed even as of today. And so that article was from Saturday, I think, right? Friday, Saturday? Yeah, well, actually, I just came across a newer interview, or interview uh, article from today. Wait, yesterday, June 24th, from Dark Horizons, Gilliam's Don Quixote writes issue resolved? Question mark? By Garth Franklin. I'm just going to read a little bit of this. A few days ago uh, came word that the Paris Court of Appeal had ruled in former producer Paul Bronco's favor in the drawn-out legal battle between him and Gilliam. However, now comes word that it's not true that Gilliam lost the film's rights. Gilliam's current producer, Mar Mariella Buczewski, tells El Espanol via the playlist that the filmmaker's production company retains the film rights, and the reports saying Bronco had won was merely a case of Bronco overstating his victory. Reportedly, no frame of the film was shot under the contract between Gilliam and Bronco, and thus Bronco doesn't have any claims to the movie rights. However, since Gilliam didn't properly terminate his contract with Bronco per French law, he will still have to pay Alfama at least 11600 bucks in damages. Once Gilliam has paid said damages, legal issues are over, and a distributor needs to be secured with plans currently being made for European territories and U.S. distribution is on the way shortly with many options reportedly on hand. End all quotes there. And again, that was an update as of yesterday, Sunday, June 24th, via Dark Horizon. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a better explanation. So 
basically, he doesn't have the right to the movie. He has the right to the money that he should have been paid for when the movie, for, for not releasing the contract properly. Correct. Yeah. Um, and he's getting his legal fees back for not releasing the contract properly, but it doesn't give him the rights to the film. So it sounds like it's just a simple stumbling block and they got to get their verbiage right and everything. So we'll just see. I mean, but I can tell you right now that until this guy gets his $11,000 and is legally forced to shut up about I'm going to sue everyone whoever even considered watching this movie in their lifetime, um, you know, going back 30 years and in- including like people who weren't born yet, I'm going to sue them too. Uh, which is the attitude from the first article from you know, the last show. Yeah. I, I don't see a distributor coming on board with this. So they're going to have to get that other fucker to shut up and they're going to have to pay him his $11,000 or whatever. But until that is tied up with a bow, I don't see any kind of distributor coming on for that. Regardless of if, even if it's just as simple as that's all it needs to be. Until that happens, I don't see anybody coming near this thing with a 10-foot pole. Because this guy's screaming bloody murder. And as we all know, it's the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. Yeehaw. But I'm <laughs> glad that it, but I'm glad that it does seem to be just as simple as, alright, pay this guy and tell him to shut up, and then we can move on. Right. And that, I, I came across that on, uh, Terry Gilliam's Twitter page. So that is a legit article based on facts. Well, then I guess, now that we got that little bit of update out of the way, uh, you want to uh, go ahead and do our bonus segment for this week? Yeah, let's do it. All right. The bonus segment, of course, is She Made Me Watch It. Don't you dare touch me. Stand back. No! No! Ah! And this time on She Made Me Watch It, I had to watch Friends with Benefits. And Tim, what did you have to watch? Heart and Souls from 92, I think. 93. Oh. I may have... Yeah, the problem this week was the the shit she wanted to make me watch and the shit that Tim eventually wanted. I seem to have watched everything. She was trying to, oh, I want to watch this movie. I want to watch this movie. And so we went to Tim for a ruling on one of the movies because I was like, actually, that was a good movie. I wouldn't mind seeing it again to see if it's aged well because it's been like, you know, 20 years or something. But because I had already seen it, it didn't matter that she wanted me to watch it. I, I, I couldn't watch it because I'd already seen it. And so then we settled on, we were, she was, was originally going to have me watch Easy A. And I couldn't remember if we'd covered that on the show or not. Um, I, cause I think we did. Didn't we cover Easy A? Uh, I've never seen it. Okay. So then I guess not. I thought for some reason we'd covered it on the show. Um, but then she changed it over cause we were over at a friend at a friend's house and he was like, dude, you should totally watch friends with benefits. I stumbled across that and it was actually good. And she's like, Oh, well, what's what, who's in that? And he was like, Oh, Justin Timberlake, blah, blah, blah. And so we started talking about that and I'm like, no, no, you're thinking of the one with Ashton Kutcher and like, no, no, that's a different movie. And so we ended up finding out that friends with benefits, which stars Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis, uh, came out in 2011 along with No Strings Attached, which starred Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman. And they're both movies about friends with benefits, right? Uh, and these, you know, so yeah. And so I'm like, wow, we should just do another copycat throwdown <laughs> and see if these two movies match up. 
But uh, yeah, so I ended up with Friends with Benefits, and you ended up with Heart and Souls, which I had already also seen. Yeah, so I'm I'm like all sorts of up and up on the she made me watch it for this week. And uh, yeah, so do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first, sir? Why don't you go first? All right. Well, then let's talk about Friends with Benefits. I just feel like we should chill for a while. I think we should take a break. You're breaking up with me? It's not you. Of course it's me. It's me. I don't like you anymore. You said that I was your soulmate. I did? When? When we were at that bed and breakfast having sex. You know, that doesn't... That doesn't what? Count. I'm done with the relationship thing. I'm emotionally unavailable. I'm emotionally damaged. You know what I'm saying? No emotions. Just sex. So I guess we should just start. Bedroom. What's wrong with the couch? The bedroom has better light. And since we're just friends, I don't have to be insecure about my body. Come on, you're beautiful. You have nothing to but, be insecure. That sounds emotionally supportive. Lock that down. Your ass is a little bony. Much better. I can work with that. Okay. Should be fine. I don't know what you're doing. I can't see you putting on your black underpants. Jamie, baby, I missed you. Oh, baby. Ah, did your boobs get bigger? It's just sex. That never works. Nah, you don't get it, bro. Jamie's different. She's no different. What do you know about women? You're gay. But the offers still keep rolling in. Naturally, look at me. Come with me to LA. You'd be a great distraction for my family. They'll love you. All fast talking and brusque like I'm bringing home a carny. Are those braids? Yeah, he was going through a crisscross face. I can't believe you used to like them. I didn't like these guys. I don't even remember. Don't try to compare us to another bad little fat. I'm the man in a bag. Give you something that you never had. Are we getting told for this? Sex? Casual sex. You just feel so college Oh, I could sing some Third Eye Blind. Okay. Closing time. One last call for alcohol. That's not Third Eye Blind. I'm pretty sure that's Third Eye Blind. Nope. You have a boat? I live in Jersey. And I ain't taking no ferry. It's out to dinner and a show. Bam! You gotta stop buying into this Hollywood cliche of true love. Shut up, Katherine Heigl, you stupid liar! I think I messed it up. It seems you're really into this guy. Do you want some motherly love advice? Mom! What are you doing? I'm the princess, and Aubrey's my bad little pony. So it is a 2011 American romantic comedy film. It's directed by Will Gluck. Stars Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis. And basically, this is... um, And also has supporting roles from uh, Jenna Elfman, Richard Jenkins, Woody Harrelson. It's, you know, pretty good. Pretty good movie. It even has early... Uh, early move or early appearances by the likes of Emma Stone and Andy Samberg as well. Even little appearances by Jason Siegel and Rashida Jones. So, ha ha ha. Check those out. Yeah. It's a, it, it, it's a, your, your typical American rom-com. As you can guess by the title, Friends with Benefits, Two people fed up with dating as a whole come across each other. She's a headhunter. He's a big web developer and blog guy from L.A. And she gets him to come work for GQ as their new art director and website designer or planner or whatever the fuck. And they, of course, stumble into a friends with benefits situation. And now let's let's promise, or as they do in the movie, they swear on a Bible app. That's right, a Bible app on the iPad. And uh, that they are only in this for the physicality of it. No, no getting attached to anyone. 
just friends with benefits. And, well, it's a it's rom-com. What, what's going to happen, right? Shenanigans ensue. Now, this is literally a by-the-numbers flick. Uh, in, in and of itself, its structure and its presentation, nothing you haven't seen before. But the chemistry between Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis is very, very good. And it is, for the most part, very smartly directed and put together, as well as acted, which is a big bonus for the uh, chemistry involved. And it really makes it a lot of fun to watch, for the most part. Um, the beginning of the third act in this uh, in, in this particular flick is the weakest part of the movie and totally didn't need to be there. But, eh, what are you going to do? It's a rom-com, and it's very formulaic in that regard. Um, Woody Harrelson is a lot of fun. He plays uh, the gay sports uh, editor of GQ, and it, he's, he's definitely a lot of fun. Over the top, but again, great interplay between him and Justin Timberlake. Um, I gotta say, I was glad I watched this movie. It really wasn't that bad. Thanks. You know, I gotta give a special shout out to thanks to Mike, uh, actually the Mike of our Cries of Solace, our, uh, music partners, uh, for cluing Jen in on this and making that her official pick because it really was a great movie. We sat down, we actually sat down this afternoon. And watched it. I had just come home from Won't You Be My Neighbor? And we ended up watching uh, Friends with Benefits this afternoon before I had to go to work. And it really was just a fantastic flick. I I mean, I think if I was going to give it like an official, official rating, I would probably come in at for sure at a three and a half, uh, maybe maybe a 3.75. But, you know, nitpickings for other, for other times and other movies. But... Not sorry I watched it, and now kind of legitimately curious about No Strings Attached to see how well that would have done. So, all in all, it was a good she made me watch it. How, how did you fare? How did you fare with pre-comeback RDJ, sir? How did you fare? It's actually a pretty good movie. I was familiar with the title because... The SO has been trying to make me watch this movie for a while now. She never really told me what it was about. Like, she mentioned, she says something about, like, Guardian Angels and Robert Downey Jr. And just, to me, that doesn't sound like a, a great film. To <laughs> Like, she left out, oh, it's actually shot well. Granted, it's hammy as fuck, but it's actually shot pretty well. And the early visual effects are still, in a way, charmingly impressive. Sitting here in limbo. Nobody really knows what happens when you die. Some say it's an end. Sitting here in limbo. Others, a beginning. Some say you just keep going round and round until you get it right. One night, four people were driven by destiny. Overtaken by fate and ended up living the life of Riley, Thomas Riley. He's not that happy to see us. Now, with the help of this reluctant mortal, there are these people in town, there are these four very annoying, very demanding people. I'm 
I want your body. No, no, that's not funny. These four souls, with no idea how long they've waited for the chance, but, well, you know, to... Are about to get a second chance. We're supposed to have you help finish things for us. It's all part of the grand scheme of things. This summer, Universal Pictures presents... We can do this! This is gonna work! Isn't it wonderful? I mean, the way the pieces fit, you and us... From Ron Underwood, director of City Slickers... Promise me you're gonna live a life that I didn't get to live. A romantic comedy with heart. You see, something good comes out of everything. Heart and souls. Heart and Souls is a 1993 comedy drama fantasy movie directed by Ron Underwood. Uh, Ron Underwood would also direct City Slickers in the 90s. He directed Mighty Joe Young, but he's mainly a TV director. The movie stars Robert Downey Jr., Charles Grodin, Alfre Woodard, Kira Sedgwick, Tom Sizemore, David Paymer, Elizabeth Shue, among other folks. But that's the main cast right there. So the movie begins in the 1950s. I think it's like 1959 or so. And there are these four people that end up becoming these guardian angels of Robert Downey Jr. Charles Grodin, his character is Harrison Winslow. He is a very shy, sheepish singer he's wanting to do musicals and whatnot but he's just so afraid to actually sing during an audition that he just can't do it so he just leaves this audition and ends up on this bus Alfre Woodard is also on this bus she is a single mom who has these three adorable kids and she's having to leave them for one reason or another so she is also on this bus Kira Sedgwick is this young woman who's working at this diner and she's going back to the suburbs to find her boyfriend who wants to marry her so bad and she decides that, you know, yes, I need to go back to marry this guy. That's the right thing to do. She's on this bus. And then the fourth guy on this bus is Tom Sizemore. He plays Milo Peck and he is a goofy, scummy robber, I guess, with the heart of gold. Uh, and also you have the, the bus driver, David Paymer, who is Hal, the bus driver, he gets distracted. He sees this wonderful woman being groped in this car that's driving alongside of them. And as he's driving, he gets distracted and he almost rams the bus into this car. In that car is his husband and wife. The husband is driving his wife to the hospital because she's just about to give birth to baby Robert Downey Jr. And his character name is Thomas Riley. The bus ends up maneuvering away from the car and kills everybody on board. How the bus driver floats up into the heavens as Charles Grodin, Alfred Woodard, Kira Sedgwick, and Tom Sizemore crawl out of the bus and they find their spirits being taken into the mind of baby Thomas Riley, who was just birthed in the car that was almost hit by the bus. And so the movie jumps another three or four years or so, and the spirits are with the baby. They're helping him grow up. They're really not sure why they're there. They haven't been given any mission from God or an angel or anything like that. They are trying to figure things out as they go. Six years on, 
the boy grows up a little bit more. He has a little personality. He's a cute kid. He has these imaginary friends, but it starts getting him in trouble. His parents think he's losing it. They're threatening to put him into a psychiatric ward. So the four angels decide we're going to go invisible on him. We cannot let him see us. So we're just going to go invisible. So for the next 30 years, until baby Thomas Riley becomes adult Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> he thinks that they were his imaginary friends. He didn't actually think these four people were, were real. So once they realize that they're there for a purpose, and they find this out when David Pamer, how the bus driver, ends up appearing to take these ghosts back, they're like, why are you taking us? We haven't fulfilled anything while being dead on this earth. So he's like, oh, yes, yeah, so you're here for a reason. He... Thomas Riley, this guy, he is your shell. He is here to help you fulfill whatever unfinished business you have so you can cross over into the afterlife with good conscience, I guess. They make themselves reappear so now Thomas Riley can see them. And the rest of the movie, they use him as their shell to finish off the things that they never got to finish. For instance, Charles Grodin summoning the courage to actually sing in front of an audience. So they have a kind of a really cheesy set piece, I guess, where they get him to sing through Robert Downey Jr. at a B.B. King concert for some reason. Alfre Woodard is trying to find her kids, her family who are now grown-ups, and all this stuff. Uh, Elizabeth Shue is, of course, the love interest who is concerned for the health of Thomas Riley because he keeps missing their dinner dates and she's just getting so pissed off. So as I said at the beginning, the movie is actually shot incredibly well. It has kind of a, an interesting like Danny Elfman-ish type of score to it. It has very mystical looking, smoky, ghost-like opening credits. It's like one of those early 90s movies where the studios were actually having fun with special effects. Think of what's the uh, Death Becomes Her. Yeah, the Meryl Streep and Roseanne Barr and Bruce Willis movie, where that was just like a fun, spooky CGI filled movie where the movie itself is eh, it's OK, but the performances are good and the look of it is worth the watch. And that's all I really got to say about this movie. It was fun watching it with the SO because she used to watch it when he, she was a kid because Growing up, at least at that time, it was difficult to find an adult PG-13 movie that you can actually watch with the kids. And surprisingly, this movie is PG-13. There's really not a whole lot of bad stuff in it. But it's a lot of the set pieces, like whenever they're trying to tug at the heartstrings, it's just cheesy. Instead of maybe four ghosts, why not three ghosts? The Tom Sizemore burglar character was just way too hammy. Charles Grodin, who I normally really like, his character was not really represented well. It was definitely underwritten. Kara Sedgwick and Alfred Woodard did the best jobs out of the four ghosts. But then Robert Downey Jr. gives a pretty damn good physical performance because when they take over his body, he has to play the older African-American woman. He has to play the Little Mitz sock cop, 50s girl, if anything, you can watch it for the performances and have a good time. Just be fully aware that it's cheesy as hell. Borderline Hallmark movie cheese, but definitely with a bigger production value. Am I glad she made me watch it? Yeah, I'm glad she made me watch it. Uh, because I tell you what, it could have been like Troop Beverly Hills. And I don't know if I can go back and rewatch Troop Beverly Hills now I'm in my 30s and enjoy it. I'd have to get high. 
And the idea of getting high or drunk to watch Troop Beverly Hills just makes me feel uncomfortable. And that's what I think about 1993's Robert Downey Jr. pre-comebacks, Heart and Souls. Yeah, alright, well next week, I guess we're just gonna do some proper news, right? Proper news, indeed. A good way to celebrate 4th of July, I'd say. Outstanding. Outstanding. Not outstanding. Outstanding. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, then that was fun. I'm glad that that actually worked out for us this time. And I guess we should go ahead and get to the news. What do you say, sir? Or the movies? God damn it. Yeah. The movies. I had news stuck in my head from just talking about us going to do news. Yes, you're right. The movies. We should do the movies. The movie. <laughs> This week's movies are Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, wh- 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 Which one do you want to do first, sir? All right. Did you give Jurassic World 2 higher than a 3? Actually, I did. All right. But I have a reason for it. That might be a long conversation. So why don't we start with why, why don't you, won't you be my neighbor? Why don't you, won't you be my neighbor? <laughs> Won't you be my neighbor? A television program for children made its unauspicious debut on station WQED in Pittsburgh. Its host, Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers? Yeah. I want to tell you something. What would you like to tell me? I like you. I like you, my dear. Thank you very much for telling me that. You take all of the elements that make good television and do the exact opposite. You have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Low production values, simple set, unlikely star. Yet, it worked. Hello. I've always felt that I didn't need to put on a funny hat or jump through the hoop to have a relationship with a child. He was always trying to get a message across in every show. A week on death. What does assassination mean? A divorce. Some people get married and after a while they're so unhappy that they don't want to be married anymore. He was radical. I know everyone says that, but he was radical. They didn't want black people to come and swim in their swimming pools. My being on the program was a statement for Fred. A neighborhood was a place where, at times, that you felt worried, scared, unsafe, would take care of you. He had a singular vision of kindness and love. Love is at the root of everything. All learning, all relationships, love or the lack of it. Children have very deep feelings, just the way everybody does. There must be times when you do feel blue. I'm not feeling blue right now, though. Me neither. (laughs) Won't you be my neighbor? Well, I suppose it's an invitation. It's an invitation for somebody to be close to you. The greatest thing that we can do is to help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. 2018 American documentary film uh, directed by Morgan Neville. It's about the life and guiding philosophy of Fred Rogers, who was the host and creator of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And, uh, yeah, basically it just... uh, Features, it's primarily interviews done, uh, 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 Joanne Rogers, 
um, Francis, uh, Francois Clemens, uh, Yo-Yo Ma, Joe Negri, David Newell, and of course Fred Rogers in archival footage, of course. Um, and this basically, it really just goes into, as it says, it's the, the, it's really more the guiding philosophy of Fred Rogers and what drove him to create the show and how he responded to its success. Um, I was very, I don't know, I guess disappointed might be too strong of a word, but I was nonplussed by the lack of his life. His true biography, I think, would have been a much better subject uh, to cover in this film, mainly because while it touches on things that were important to him in his life and things that he did with his life to a certain degree in the private realm, it really was just about the show and how the show affected those aspects of his life. So, for example, Francois Clemens is gay, um, but he he didn't really focus on that aspect of it, despite him having many, many friends who were gay uh, throughout his life. He was not judgmental of those who were gay, but during the filming of the show, because he felt that the show took precedence uh, when he found out that uh, Clemens had gone to a gay bar, he's like, look, you can't go back to that gay bar because we'll lose sponsors if they find out. Now, it wasn't a matter of I, you're not allowed to be gay. It was he just was in the realm of the show. And they do come back to that later on. And, and Clemens even speaks about how Fred was the first man in his life to truly say and mean, I love you. And, and in the truest platonic friend, you know, most true and honest friendship way that you can mean to love someone. And Clemens took that to heart his whole life. I mean, he said that Fred became a surrogate father because of that. So it's not so much that he was anti-gay by any stretch of imagination, but it's things like that. I would love to have had the film explore why he was so open in that time frame to those who were gay. What drove that aspect of it? Yes, it can still be about the show and how ultimately those things would have affected the show or not affected the show, what have you. But to really extend and build upon that, um, you know, what was it like as for his children? You know, how did he have that reactionary aspect of his life that was truly reactionary because they they speak briefly about Fred kind of using one of the voices of the puppets when he needed to kind of get something across that would be that would sound to his family as something that Fred Rogers wouldn't say. Well, how does that affect a kid growing up, right? What were the challenges that these kids had as a result of having as one of the as one of his sons put it you know basically the second coming of christ as your dad now there are interviews and there are i i think it was vanity fair it might have been variety I, I read an article online that kind of actually discussed um a little bit about his son one of his sons who kind of like grew out his hair and ran off to college and this kind of stuff like that 
But I think those would have been great things to have added into the film. Um, things that, you know, if you're someone who's a fan of history, of pop culture, of, you know, things that were important to your childhood, a lot of the things that came from this film, you may, you may have already known. And so it doesn't present a whole lot of new information. Consequently, it's also not quite as touching as I had wanted it to be. I was, I literally, I was telling some people at work, I'm like, oh man, I'm going to go see, won't you be my neighbor? And I don't care if I'm a 40 year old man, I'm taking me a box of Kleenex in there. I'm probably going to be crying like a little bitch. Um, you know, I was expecting to be completely moved, especially after having watched the trailer. And, you know, there are some poignant pieces in there and there are some touching things, but nothing exceptionally moving especially for someone who was so important. And so I think the move, I think the the documentary is good and I think that if you are someone who missed out on Fred Rogers for whatever reason, I would highly recommend this film. I think if you want to trip down memory lane, you're also going to get something out of it. But beyond the show itself, it's not that engrossing, it's not that informative. And so I give this one a 3.75. Um, it's still a good movie. I definitely liked it. But for something as profound as it was purported to be, I, th I found it a little lacking. Um, so 3.75. What do you got there, Tim? I agree with you 100%. I thought it was a very good movie, but it was also a very safe documentary. They really focus on all the right things that they're supposed to focus on and say and not step over any particular boundaries. We've all seen that picture or snippet of film where somebody's playing a joke on him, on Fred Rogers, and he just sticks up the middle finger. Like, he just flicks people off at the camera with the biggest smile on his face. So, you know, like, he had more of a goofy personality I kind of would have liked to have seen that. Also, going off of what you were talking about with uh, the gentleman who who was homosexual that Rogers did want him to come out at the time, it would have been interesting to look into that even more. I'm curious to know if his wife said anything. There are things that they would touch on, but never went into full investigative mode just in case they unearth something that would totally change the outlook they were trying to get across in this documentary. So it felt like it was a very precise documentary. Was it entertaining? Of course. Was I? Was it touching? Most of the time it was incredibly touching. But it just missed on a little bit of rawness that I think would have made this documentary particularly special and maybe even provided us with something that we actually haven't seen before in regards to Fred Rogers. I give this one still a 4.5 out of 5. It's a very good documentary. If you have any inkling of wanting to see this film, go see it at the movie theater. It's definitely worth your money. It's just too safe. Oh, and just as a, a side note, Morgan Neville was the director of 20 Feet from Stardom from a few years ago, which was the Oscar-winning documentary. And um, so I was definitely looking forward to that aspect of it as well. So. We'll see, anyway. and with 20 Feet from Stardom, that's also a very safe documentary, but it's a very entertaining documentary. 
True. You know, like it, it just kind of skirts the line of does it need to be entertainment to get the story across or does it actually have to be something a little bit more? So then that leaves us with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. How many can you save? Eleven species. Blue is the last of her kind. You'll never capture her. We thought you might know someone who could help. A rescue op? What could go wrong? Hey, Blue. You know me. Come with me. You know you can't stay here. Back your men up right now. It was all a lie! The man who proved raptors can follow orders. You never thought how many millions a trained predator might be once? They're a cell. Not blue. They need it for something else. What is that thing? They made it. This is the most dangerous creature that ever walked the earth. I say we shut this whole thing down. Genetic power has now been unleashed. You can't put it back in the box. If I don't make it back, remember you're the one who made me come here. I'll be all right. These creatures were here before us. And if we're not careful, they're gonna be here after. Welcome to Jurassic World. All right, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom 2018, American science fiction adventure film. It's also the sequel to Jurassic World, directed by J.A. Bayona, and of course the fifth installment in the Jurassic Park film series, and apparently the second installment of a planned Jurassic World trilogy. The film, of course, stars Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, Rafe Spall, Justice Smith, Daniel Pineda, James Cromwell, Toby Jones, Ted Levine, and B.T. Wong, uh, Isabella Sermon, Geraldine Chaplin, and Jeff Goldblum. It's been a few years since the whole Jurassic World thing happened, and uh, Isla New. Nublar has been abandoned, of course, and the long dormant volcano has somehow become active again. So I guess good call geologists on missing that, because even if Jurassic World hadn't happened, well, you would have been killing everybody by now anyway. So um, the the issue now becomes, do we rescue these poor dinosaurs or do we just let them go extinct again? And, you know, Claire and Owen get suckered into going back and whatever. Um, and, and rescuing dinosaurs. And shenanigans ensue from the literal moment they land on the stupid island. Um, all right. There is a really good uh, video on on YouTube. I actually watched this uh, either yesterday or the day before. It is called Jurassic Park's Sequel Problem. Uh, the guy who does it is Patrick H. Willems, and uh, he's pretty big, you know, pretty big YouTuber. And he is definitely in our age group. Okay, so you know he's definitely over thirty and lived the Jurassic Park experience. And the the thing that he talks about is what makes Jurassic Park so hard to beat is that it has the perfect balance of wonder and horror. 
especially for a PG-13 movie from 1993. And I agree with him wholeheartedly on that point. Uh, that, uh, you guys know Jurassic Park was a huge, huge movie for me. It is the only movie I have ever seen ten times in the movie theater. And... I had all the merchandise, I had posters on the walls, I was completely into this thing, I had the books, I mean, the whole nine yards. And so, while I was a fan of Jurassic World in and of itself, I did say that it was not as good as Jurassic Park in my opinion, but it was the best movie since Jurassic Park. Um, and so, I'm watching Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and again, I'd already watched Jurassic Park sequel problem. Um, and so I'm about halfway through it and I'm, and I'm remembering what this Patrick Willems guy said. And I'm looking at the movie and I'm not enjoying it because the first half of this movie is patently terrible. Um, it exists. It, it is literally one of the longest plot devices I have ever seen in my life. And what makes it worse is that it is literally unnecessary. It is a one fucking hour plot device that didn't need to be there. Um, and I'm sitting here watching the movie and I'm remembering and I'm looking at this thing going, wow, because when they were talking about in this video, when they were talking about wonder and horror, it was really the wonder that did it. The whole thing was is that even people who existed for the time and, and could truly appreciate, and of course, cinephiles, you know, movie junkies, the people who really love all aspects of cinema, will remember the amazing ability for Ray Harryhausen to use his stop motion animation and everything to create lifelike worlds. Haven't aged very well, sure, but for the time they were great, you can appreciate the history of the cinema. My kids even love watching Ray Harryhausen films and stuff. Um, we're down to the last movie from Tim's Christmas Gift. So, you know, so they're still watching these, you know, Ray Harryhausen movies. So even factoring in those level of special effects for people who were growing up in the movie world and everything, the wonder, the awe that Jurassic Park provided in 1993 literally had never been done before. It wasn't just movie magic. People saw dinosaurs as real living creatures for the first time ever. And you just can't replicate that. And so here I am remembering what was going on from this particular YouTube video and watching this movie going, holy crap, is this movie terrible? And then there's a tonal shift. So the first half of the movie is getting dinosaurs off the island. Second half of the movie is what happens once dinosaurs come off the island. Very much, again, ring theory, much like Lost World, right? Jurassic Park 2. Um, the only difference being in Lost World, it's like the first three-fourths of the movie are get dinosaurs off the island. Last fourth of the movie is what happens when they come off. Here it's basically half and half. So the back half of the movie starts to explore some very interesting concepts that go beyond, that go directly to the heart of what the science means, of what playing God means in the, in the universe of Jurassic Park, Jurassic World. And in that exploration 
they start coming up with some pretty interesting ideas. And so the movie kind of picks up. Not quite action-wise, although there's some fun action scenes as well. But the questions it starts asking, and then that with the interplay of the characters, who, for, for better or worse, actually have some pretty good chemistry. Uh, the kid in the movie, I'm trying to... Maisie Lockwood, played by Isabella Sermon. She's she's pretty decent. Um, the, uh, I, I was honestly expecting a twist with her uh, in the movie being like Ellie's daughter or something like that, but I, I you know, that that doesn't happen. But at, at any rate, they they get to this aspect of the movie, and I'm kind of watching, and all of a sudden it dawns on me. What if I am wrong? You know, the old Principal Skinner thing. Am I wrong? No, it's the kids who are out of touch. But then I thought about it. What if I am wrong? What if, what if I wasn't 40 years old? What if I am experiencing Fallen Kingdom for the first time? What if I am experiencing the thrill of the dinosaurs and stuff? Because there are people that I've talked to who are in their late teens and early twenties and they don't, and they think that Jurassic Park is only okay. My kids who have seen Jurassic Park prefer Jurassic World. It's, I, you know, there's just no accounting for taste is the joke, but at the same time, for them, Jurassic World became their Jurassic Park. And when I shifted through that lens, combined with the fact that the back half of the movie actually got a little bit better, it helped increase my enjoyment and my appreciation for what was actually happening. Additionally, there were true throwbacks to the original Jurassic Park. Wherever possible, uh, J.A. Bayona actually used animatronics and maquettes. And so there's a scene in particular in the, in the middle of the movie where, uh, you've got Owen and Claire. They are trapped in a, in a, basically in a, in a container in the back of a truck with the T-Rex. And that's not CGI. None of that there is CGI. Um, it's even a little portion of it is in the trailer as I found out. So yay, no spoiler. This is, I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun to actually see that real interaction again, which is something that hasn't been done really well since Jurassic Park. And when I, when I started looking through that lens and realizing that this is where a lot of the people are experiencing their Ray Harryhausen moments, they're experiencing my Jurassic Park moments, it helped me better come to grips with what is happening and the and the ideas and the overtures being made for the the philosophical questions that are being asked the action also the horror aspect of it isn't really horror anymore but i would argue that it's at least thrilling to a greater degree than i was willing to give it credit for before and because of that back half, because of that shift in tone and the way I was looking at it, I ended up on a three and a half. It's not the best movie in the franchise, in my opinion. It's got a lot of problems in the front. But 
looking at it and understanding it from the perspective of the audiences who are looking at it today, who are experiencing it for their first time. Combined with better use of CGI, better use of animatronics to give you something that's a little bit more real, to give you something that's worth watching and worth attempting to invest in, makes the movie likable enough that I can give it a three and a half. And Tim, I hope you don't hate me. So please bring us home. I want to bring you home with a 1.5 star rating review of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. (laughs) It's more the same shit. But worse, I was really hoping that this director was going to knock it out of the ballpark because I was a big fan of The Impossible, The Orphanage. I was also a fan of A Monster Calls, which we talked a little bit about a few weeks ago. I was hoping he would bring something new to the franchise. And in the second hack, the second hack, (laughs) the second half of the film, he does bring a little something new to the franchise. But it just didn't really fit the franchise. It goes from being a dinosaur movie to becoming a monster movie with dinosaurs. And, like, the handling of it was just kind of ridiculous. Everything from the actors to the performances themselves, people were just either miscast or the characters were bad. For example, Roth or Rafe Spall, who's the guy who is overseeing John Hammond's house, I guess. He works for the James Cromwell character. Well, Rafe Spall, he's an English guy, but he has the worst American accent. So watching him perform, it looks like he looks like a douchebag English guy pretending to be a douchebag American guy. It was a lot of stuff like that that didn't work. Chris Pratt, his humor wasn't funny. Bryce Dallas Howard, Justice Smith, and Daniela... Pineda, who played the two young people in the movie, were completely miscast. It's like Justin Smith, the filmmakers were done with them, so they found a way just to get rid of them for the last 35% of the movie. Mainly, the side characters are put in this film for exposition or to put some people in mild peril. And when you have special effects that are obviously special effects... And you have peril that doesn't look real enough to raise the stakes. For instance, whenever they're trying to beat the volcano, Bryce Dallas Howard and Justice Smith, the two of them are in that ball thing from the first movie. It's traveling away as all this ash and smoke is pummeling towards the side of the cliff. And so the ball's going and the camera's facing the back and you're seeing Chris Pratt running through the smoke and ash. But how it's like covering him, how it's eating him up, and how he's reacting to it, it's just so fake in such a green screen moment that it's difficult to take any of these effects seriously. And therefore, if the stakes aren't being risen, and what you're looking at isn't fooling you into believing that these characters are in a crisis of some sort, you're not going to really care if they live or survive because obviously they're going to they're going to live. All that stuff just doesn't add up at all. Even when the movie starts getting interesting and it turns into a, a slasher house horror movie or whatever and the movie is just so ridiculous, borderline 
sci-fi TV series ridiculous that you just don't care. But the entire time, the score, which the score is definitely, I I should say, overscored. (laughs) It's an overscored score that's trying to sound more epic and moving, more moving than it actually is. Every dinosaur, it seems like, saves the day at the end of the movie. It's like, that's a new thing for all these Jurassic Park movies. The smaller dinosaur has to kill the bigger dinosaur in a very heroic fashion, and it has to do that very swooping zoom out to really hammer in that heroic moment. So if you have too much of that, it doesn't have that desired effect. It doesn't pack that punch, you know? And that's what these moments are are supposed to do. They're supposed to pack that punch. And I knew this movie was going to be off from the very beginning. You have the very dramatic reveal of the Jurassic World emblem with the lava flowing all throughout it. You have Jeff Goldblum at the beginning of the film, and as you're as you're watching it, you realize, huh, everything Jeff Goldblum is saying is pretty much every single thing he says in that in the trailer. I wonder what else he has to say. Well, apparently not much, except spoiler alert. I'll wait five seconds. At the end of the film, he basically tells you we're now living in a Jurassic world. Oh. You should have saw the signs. The world where humans were playing with science, and now we have a Jurassic World. Twice! You only see him twice. And I probably would have liked it more if we didn't see him in the trailer, maybe? But that's like the least of my worries. Yes, it becomes Jurassic World. The entire planet becomes overrun with dinosaurs, apparently. You see maybe 15 dinosaurs are let loose and you only see one of each dinosaur. So within a a rather short span of time, 15 dinosaurs, where there's only one of each species, ends up populating the Earth enough for it to be like a global catastrophe. Now, whatever. Okay, I don't understand how they could repopulate that way, but couldn't the National Guard assemble and just take out those 15 dinosaurs in maybe a few days. That would have been a pretty cool movie. The dinosaurs were let out on this compound or on this private island or something, this resort island that this guy lived on. And so, well, the next movie, since it's still contained in a way, you bring in the National Guard to try to take him out. And look, there's your next movie. It just takes place right after this one. Logically, it just doesn't make sense. And I get it, yes, Jurassic Park wasn't the most logical film, but it was still an entertaining one that didn't have to pull out this girl as the clone of John Hammond's daughter card, which where the fuck does that even... I mean, who cares? That was built up to be such an oh-gosh moment. But it doesn't amount to anything. The bitch, the little bitch, she just let the dinosaurs go at the end of the movie. She let them go. She fucked everybody over, apparently. Because she sympathized with them because she was a clone. Even the Cylons of Battlestar Galactica knew when to draw the line when it came to that shit. Just one and a half out of five. If you go into this movie thinking you're going to like this movie, you're not going to give a crap about what I have to say about it. So just 1.5 out of five. At least Matt enjoyed it. (laughs) I'd like to think I qualified myself pretty well, but maybe. Maybe not. (laughs) Anyway, all right. Well, that brings us to the end of the movies. We've kind of hit what we feel is pretty much everything worth seeing for now. Uh, There's not a whole lot coming out in July, at least for the first part. So 
Next week's movie, just right, just movie, is going to be Sicario, Day of the Soldado. And without further ado, I guess that leaves us with the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! You know, I'm very, very interested in the history of your young nation. I hear that absolutely everyone here is is starving to death. No. It's uh, quite all right. This is a common misconception. Oh, okay. See for yourself. Oh, wow! It's a grocery store! Looks like the Whole Foods around the corner from my place. Yep, guess no one's hungry here after all. <laughs> we have an abundance of food here. And speak of the devil, look at that fat kid! Hi, little fatty! Hi! We have a many fat children in North Korea. The Supreme Leader believes it is a hallmark of a prosperity and a self-sufficiency. I don't know about all that, but this one is one that I heard. I heard he doesn't pee or poo. He works so hard, he burns the energy from inside. You're, you're telling me my man doesn't have to take a poo? Does, does he have a butthole? He does not have a butthole. He has no need for one. Right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget to check us out on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or even the old SoundCloud. Or maybe even on Google, too. Who knows? And, of course, please, if you feel like supporting the show, you can do that over at Patreon. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Fred Rogers, I get to say this. When I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> <laughs>